Optimal health for high performers. This is the Health Upgrade Podcast with Dr. Nawaz Habib. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of the Health Upgrade Podcast. So today we're going to talk about mitochondria and the effect of vagus nerve and vagus nerve stimulation on the mitochondria. I'm joined again by my co-host, JP Erico. Great to see you, JP. Welcome to be. Happy to be here. Amazing. And today we're going to dig into a little bit of a few cellular processes that are really important to make sure that the body and the cells are working optimally. The mitochondria are imperative when it comes to optimal cellular function. Every single cell in our body, except for red blood cells, contains mitochondria. And these mitochondria produce the energy required for the cell to do the job that it needs to do. Each cell is going to have a different type of job, right? Our osteoblasts in our bone have a particular job of building bone, where our alveolar macrophages have a very particular job of ensuring that our lungs are devoid of any breakdown or viral or bacterial inputs. And so they have their jobs, they have their particular specific things that they have to complete, but the mitochondria are very important in ensuring that those cells have the energy available to be able to do their job. And mitochondria are heavily involved in the inflammatory process as well. And so what we're going to talk today about is that mechanism by which vagus nerve stimulation, acetylcholine, and that specific receptor we've mentioned many times on the podcast before, are involved in the production of or the stopping of that chronic inflammatory process. We're also going to dig into a little bit with regards to serotonin and melatonin, which are really important here because serotonin neurotransmitter that's involved in mood regulation and happiness does break down to melatonin, which is a neurotransmitter slash neurochemical that's heavily involved in the sleep process and the recovery and antioxidant processes as well. There's a very clear interaction between these, and we want to dig into that today for all of you. And there are some very clear clinical indications for where these important tools would be utilized. So we're going to get into that as well. So as you can see, there's a lot to cover in this episode. For some people, it will be a bit of a review, but we want to kind of dig into the mechanisms by which mitochondria are affected by the vagus nerve and vagus nerve stimulation. Okay. JP, why don't we start off talking a little bit about kind of the basics with regards to DNA, RNA, proteins, and continue the conversation from there. Sure. As you said, this is going to be a bit of a, a review on some things, but hopefully in the, this context, it will be quite fresh for people. But let's start, as you said, with the building blocks of life. You know, there's there's DNA, which is a, a, a long sequence of nucleic acids structured in a double helix, which is more stable than a single strand of, of nucleic acids. And, and therefore, it's a more robust way of storing the, the, the genetic code. There are only four nucleic acids that are part of DNA. So that code is built up with only four letters, A, G, T, and C. Stretches of DNA form the blueprint uh, for protein construction. Th those are what we call genes. So genes code for a protein. The genes in the DNA blueprint are read by proteins that are designed to do that. They split the the double helix in half, and then they read one half of that code and convert it, or what's referred to as transcri in a transcription process, they transcribe it 
into a strand of RNA, which is only one strand. It doesn't have the double helix structure. It's a single struct, single helix. And that strand is then used for the construction of proteins. Proteins themselves are built from a long string of amino acids that are, are linked together by in cells they're called ribosomes ribosomes link those those amino acids together and then once you have a long strand of them they fold up together into a into a ball if you will and it's a very complicated process protein folding is is one of the great problems in 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 prediction of how biochemistry works but there are a couple of dozen different amino acids that are used to produce proteins and therefore since you only have four letters in your code, that A, G, T, and C, but you have you know a couple of dozen different amino acids, then the code isn't a one-for-one one code. It's not like A codes for leucine and T is for tryptophan or C is for cysteine. It, it doesn't work that way. In fact, it isn't even two nucleic acids. It's, it turns out that it's three nucleic acids in a row that, that form what's referred to as a codon. And that codon then codes for a single amino acid. So if you have AAA together, that means something. It, it refers to a specific amino acid. ATT codes for something as well. Now, you also have a stop and a go codon as well. But there, when you, if you think about it, there are four different letters, A, T, G, and C. And if you have three of them in a row, that's 64 possible combinations. So there's some overlap. Some some amino acids have as many as four or five or even six different codons that will code for that amino acid. And then there's others that only have one or two. But the interesting thing is that this code, what, what three-letter sequence refers to which amino acid is common across all life on the planet. All life, plants and animals, but it doesn't apply to chloroplasts and mitochondria, the energy producers of plants and animals respectively. And so it's really interesting because it suggests that perhaps these organelles that are inside these cells are actually not really the same form of life, that they, they're a separate form of life. And so it's interesting from an evolutionary standpoint to look back a billion years or more and say, how is it that mitochondria came to be in every cell and chloroplast came to be in every plant cell. How did that happen? And, you know, it's an exciting topic and, and we'll spend a little bit of time talking about that right now, but it's just interesting how evolution works. Evolution seems to work by allowing positive interactions and symbiotic relationships to flourish. And over time, the interdependence of those two organisms become sort of inseparable. They're not; it's not possible to separate them and have them survive independently. And so, there were many different forms of life in the primordial sea, if you will. Among these were cyanobacteria and alpha proteobacteria. The cyanobacteria had the ability, or they generated, they, they evolved the ability to create sugar or glucose from carbon dioxide, water, and sunlight. And we all know this because we all took, you know, fourth grade science and we learned about, you know, photosynthesis and how plants have the ability to take in carbon dioxide, use water and sugar and, and sunlight to make sugars. 
animals don't have that ability. But these early bacteria that were floating around in the in the primordial sea, sometimes they would come along and they would find one of these cyanobacteria or alpha proteobacteria, and they would engulf them. They would eat them. And initially, when they did that, they would digest them and they would use the energy and it was sort of a you know scavenging predator-prey kind of relationship. But sooner or later, the mitochondria and the chloroplasts or you know, the cyanobacteria and the alpha proteobacteria figured out a way to survive inside that cell that was engulfing them by producing more energy and sort of making this grand bargain that says, listen, if you don't, if you don't digest me and you let me stay here, then I'll produce energy for you. And it turns out that that worked really well because those other cells, those other organisms that were engulfing them, they had a very rudimentary energy utilization process called glycolysis, where the glucose would be broken down and you get, you know, maybe four ATP, adenosine triphosphate molecules per sugar that was broken down. But these mitochondria or what became mitochondria had the ability to make, take the, the, the waste of that glycolysis process and turn it into up to 28 different ATP. And the chloroplasts did even better. They, they could actually generate the sugar that would drive glycolysis. And then the mitochondria could use what's called oxidative phosphorylation to generate all that ATP. So it was, a, it was sort of a grand bargain that worked really well. The interesting thing is, and how do we know all this? I mean, this is a, grand, a great story and it sounds really cool, but how do we know that this is the case? Well, we know that because the code that's used in the DNA, because they're still, chloroplasts and, and mitochondria have their own DNA. They're creating their own proteins. Mitochondria in, in human beings generates about 37 of their own proteins. They have, a, they have a little plasmid DNA, almost like a little bacteria. They have their own plasmid DNA that generates 37 different proteins. But the code is slightly different. The three-letter codon for you know, for some of the amino acids in in our cells and in the nuclear DNA is different than the three-letter codon translation for, for mitochondria and for chloroplasts. And between mitochondria and chloroplasts, they're slightly different as well. So just kind of interesting stuff. Absolutely. I think thinking back evolutionarily it really helps to understand where certain things kind of came from, how we got to be the way that we are, how things were incorporated. So that symbiosis truly is the way that we are able to function at the level that we are. We provide carbon dioxide to plant life. Plant life uses carbon dioxide, produces their own ATP, produces their own glucose. We're then able to utilize that glucose by eating fruits and vegetables and produce our own energy through that source, as well as they produce the oxygen that we then utilize for our breathing. It's this wonderful symbiotic relationship that we've created with the planet. Then we go even deeper and we see that mitochondria and the chloroplast in, in plant are actually these derivatives that we've utilized internally in every cell of our bodies as these wonderful symbiotic relationships as well, because they are producing the energy by which our cells require to be able to function at the higher levels that they want to. If we were incapable of this, we would still be devolved beings. We wouldn't be 
animals and humans the way that we are, we wouldn't have the energy to get to the point where we can think more clearly and do these types of things. It goes to show that when we feed our mitochondria really well, we're going to function at a higher level. When we provide the right nutrients, the right tools, that mitochondria is going to bless us with optimal energy, optimal function. Whereas when we don't, it's going to have a bit of a deteriorating effect. So let's get into understanding how the mitochondria work. What do they utilize? What are the nutrients that they require to function well and how we can optimize their optimal function? Yeah, that's a really important question because energy utilization and energy creation and the metabolism associated with it is critical. You know, you made a really interesting point that I just want to, before we dive into that, I just want to sort of riff back to something you said about the fact that we as human beings wouldn't be or animals wouldn't exist the way they do. I'm not sure that they would even exist at all because really the idea or the capability to be a multicellular organism really requires so much energy and so much specialization that I don't believe that it would have been possible for the diversity of life to have blossomed without that symbiotic relationship between mitochondria and cells so that there would be the production of energy necessary to accomplish all the tasks. You know, it's very similar. And I think we had the chance to talk about this on an earlier podcast. It's very similar to the theory that the reason why human beings have such large brains is because we learned or we, we evolved the ability to cook our food, that it enabled us to do so much of the digestion process externally using fire and using cooking techniques to break down the difficult to, to digest cellulose and other things so that when we ate, we were able to ingest many, many more calories. And because thinking and, and supporting a really big brain is such an energy intensive process, something like a quarter of all the calories that we eat are, are used up by something that's somewhere between a 50th and a 100th of our, of our body size was really only possible because we had that excess energy. Mm -hmm. We were able to evolve that brain because of our, of our cooking. Now, again, that's a hypothesis, a great theory, and I think it probably holds a lot of water. But at the same time, it's, it's just yet another parallel to what mitochondria are doing in cells. But let's dig into what, what mitochondria are doing because there's, it's, it sounds like sort of this ideal process, this oxidative phosphorylation, creating so much energy, but at the same time, it needs things. It needs it needs the fuel. It needs glucose or the the byproduct of glycolysis to run its its processes. It needs oxygen, and it needs iron. It turns out that iron is a really important trace mineral that's used in mitochondria for in their processes for generating ATP. The problem is, anytime you put oxygen in contact with iron you have the ability or the risk of creating what are referred to as reactive oxygen species. And reactive oxygen species are extremely damaging. They're the free radicals. They're, they have a lots of energy of destruction, if you will. And so you need processes that can reduce that those reactive oxygen species to a, a less dangerous state. Um, and it turns out that one of the chemicals that your body generates and your cells generate, and frankly, mitochondria need, and they can generate it themselves actually, is melatonin. And so melatonin has this remarkable ability to absorb and scavenge and reduce 
lots and lots of reactive oxygen species. I think I think each individual molecule of, of melatonin has the ability to absorb something north of a dozen reactive oxygen species, and they do it very quickly and efficiently. So as you can imagine, if you've got these damaging molecules floating around as a result of the energy creation that mitochondria do, they have the ability to damage the, the molecular structures inside the mitochondria that are doing all these chemical reactions, as well as damage the DNA mm -hmm. of the mitochondria, then when melatonin levels are low, damage starts to build up. There's, there's, you know, a higher level of, you know, it's not really toxicity, but we'll call it toxicity for this purpose. It's a higher level of toxicity that's building up. And at some point, that damage can reach a threshold where the mitochondria really become dysfunctional and they can't do what they're supposed to be doing. And when that happens, mitochondria have this really interesting strategy that they've, and, and, and for the life of me, I can't really explain why they do it, but when they get to the point where there's this high level of damage that's happened inside the mitochondria, they will at some point spit out their DNA. They just sort of eject it out of them. And that's not because they're inside the cell and they're just an organelle now sitting inside the cell. When they spit it out, they spit it out into the interior of the cell. And Having DNA, especially plasmid DNA, floating around inside the cell that's not inside the nucleus wrapped up the way it's supposed to be to be stored, well, that's very inflammatory. Um, there are two pathways in particular, the sting pathway, which you know we'll, we'll have an opportunity to talk about on other episodes, but because it's a, in and of itself a huge story, but the sting pathway, and then we have these toll-like receptor 9 structures that are on endoplasmic reticulum and other where, other places where when they come in contact with that that plasmid DNA, it activates the inflammatory process. So you could see how mitochondrial dysfunction can happen if there's not enough melatonin around mm -hmm. uh, because the mitochondria need that melatonin. If there's not enough available to it, then the mitochondria get dysfunctional. They spit out their DNA and it activates the entire inflammatory process. So we need to dig into understanding, you know, how melatonin is created, why would there not be enough of it, all of that going on, because it's it's kind of an interesting story how inflammation can cascade. Yeah, no question. And melatonin is is a really interesting tool here because we often and in kind of not just in the functional world, but just in understanding how we function, we know that melatonin is linked to sleep. We know that when we don't sleep, when we don't produce melatonin, we don't sleep very well. And when we don't sleep very well, we don't produce enough melatonin. And we go down a bit of an inflammatory pathway here. And so this is a really important uh, piece of that optimal health process. We know how important sleep is. We've all hear, heard that you got to get your seven to nine hours every night and you got to get off your phone for the hour before bed and you got to make sure that this is all happening. And it's all simply due to the fact that melatonin needs to be present. It is such an important and powerful antioxidant. It is the tool that helps to reduce the burden of reactive oxygen species caused by this iron-oxygen interaction that's happening inside the mitochondria. So the mitochondria in producing ATP are going to produce these reactive oxygen species, these, these potentially dangerous, or, or not potentially, they are absolutely dangerous, toxins that are built up within the mitochondria and within the cell 
that can damage the DNA and change the code. And that's really important. When we damage the DNA and we create dysfunction or we damage that code, we code for different proteins and that's where issues can occur. So from a root cause perspective, if we can stop that breakdown from occurring or slow that process down, that's going to be really important for our longevity, for our optimal function. And so this is where mitochondrial dysfunction is often talked about with regards to functional health and creating an optimal environment for energy production. And so melatonin is a really important piece. So let's dig into melatonin and understand how it's created and what the the function of melatonin is, how we can improve it as well. Sure, absolutely. So melatonin is, as you said, a really important molecule for a variety of different reasons. And its precursor upstream, if you will, is the amino acid tryptophan. Now we encountered this before, and we've talked about tryptophan in the context of serotonin. And so, so tryptophan, it's an amino acid, um, and in a two-step process that animals actually do one way, they do step A and then B, and plants do it the other way, they do B then A, but in either way, either case, if you hydroxylate and then decarboxylate, or in other way, decarboxylate and then hydroxylate, tryptophan, you will produce serotonin. No quiz on those specific terms, but, but tryptophan is basically in a two-step process turned into serotonin. Serotonin, as you mentioned, is involved in pain, dealing with pain. It's also involved in dealing with mood. In fact, when you deal with people who have migraine headaches or fibromyalgia or other pain conditions or sleep disorders or, or mood disorders, et cetera, what you often talk about are the three legs of the stool, if you will. The three legs of that pain stool are mood, sleep, and pain. And serotonin is involved in all three of those. So it's very important that you produce sufficient quantities of serotonin. In fact, many of the drugs, and we've talked about them before, that are prescribed for treating depression, for example, are the serotonin receptor agonists, or, or in the case of depression, reuptake inhibitors. They're blocking the reuptake mechanisms. In the case of migraine, it's more the serotonin receptor agonists, things like triptans, that are designed to bind to serotonin receptors. But serotonin is then subject to a two-step process that plants and animals do it in both directions. They can do one step first or the other, and that's an acylation and then a methylation process, and that produces melatonin. Again, no specific you know, quiz about this in terms of how the chemistry works, but at the end of the day, it's a four-step process from tryptan, two steps take you to serotonin, and then two steps take you to melatonin. The problem is that's not the only thing that tryptophan can be turned into. Um, and this is where dysfunction starts to creep into the, into the setting because there's a chemical, indolamine-2,3-deoxygenase, or you know, loosely called IDO. In the liver, it's actually referred to as TDO. It's tryptophan-deoxygenase. But in the brain, it's indolamine-2,3-deoxygenase. And when that is present, it pushes tryptophan down a different synthetic pathway that creates initially a compound called tenurinine. Um, and we, we talked about this, I think, in terms of depression on an earlier episode, that that's a chemical that's found in higher concentrations in patients who have depression. And that's an indication that that IDO is present and it's, it's blocking or inhibiting the production of serotonin. Now, IDO is not such a bad thing. 
In fact, indolamine-2,3-deoxygenase and canurinine and the output of canurinine, which ultimately downstream produces something called quinolinic acid, there's a need for that. So it's not something that's just sort of a bad dysfunctional thing that's created. IDO is actually produced by anti-inflammatory cells. So cells that are not inflamed, but may be in an inflammatory environment, they get triggered those anti-inflammatory cells, like, like tissue resident microglial cells in the brain, they like to be in an anti-inflammatory state. We want to keep them there. We've talked about that at length in some of the other podcasts, how important keeping those tissue resident macrophages of the brain, the microglial cells in that anti-inflammatory posture so they can do all their housekeeping tasks, maintain homeostasis, how they want to stay there. But when, when there is an inflammatory trigger, the first thing that they do, or one of the first things that they do in response to seeing TNF-alpha levels or IL-1 levels, is they begin to produce IDO. They say, okay, you know, why is that? Why, what's, what is IDO doing? Well, it turns out that that helps them, helps the environment and helps those cells defeat microbes. So it's an antimicrobial, if you will. It's, it's a microbicide. And as a result, it's it's beneficial. But understand the consequences are you now aren't producing serotonin and therefore you don't have the precursor to make melatonin. So what happens is over, if it's just a brief period of inflammation, well, that slightly higher level of reactive oxygen species that will start to accrue and the damage that it's going to cause in the mitochondria is sort of just the, 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 price, the price of survival. The idea is we're, we're going to maintain this cell in an anti-inflammatory state. We're going to still fight the microbes that might be present. And yet we're going to have to tolerate some level of temporary or hopefully recoverable damage to the mitochondria. The problem is what happens when that gets extended. Exactly. So I want to just go through a quick overview of what we kind of just learned here. So we start with tryptophan, the amino acid that comes in via diet, via other paths as well, but primarily through diet. And the tryptophan breaks down or is, is broken down to serotonin on one side and serotonin becomes melatonin on that same pathway. Serotonin is necessary for mood regulation and pain regulation and just ensuring that we stay in a good place generally from our, our body function perspective. Little fun side note, and I think I may have mentioned this, but somewhere between 90 and 95% of our serotonin is actually produced in the gut. So gut function needs to be optimal in order to allow for serotonin production to be optimal. Serotonin levels are also very low in depression. I'm glad you mentioned that. I was going to mention that. I forgot. In the gut, the, the source of serotonin is not your cells. It's actually the microbiome. So it's the single cell animals that are crawling around inside your gut, the bacteria that's there, they're creating serotonin. And you say, well, why are they, you know, what, what benefit is serotonin to those, those microbes? They, they don't have nervous systems that need activity. They don't have a gut that needs peristaltic motion to, to function. They don't have any of that. Why would they be producing serotonin? And the truth is, the answer is because they need the serotonin be, to make melatonin. So, you know, the, the, you're absolutely right. 90 to 95% of serotonin is produced in the gut. The, the, that serotonin really stays there. 
or stays in the periphery, it doesn't make it up to the brain. So the brain has to make its own up in the, the dorsal rafi nucleus and, and other cells that specialize in making it. Absolutely. And so understanding that there's a balance between production in the central nervous system, as well as the gut, that there is a variation here that is occurring. When we are when we have gut dysfunction, dysbiosis, something along those lines, the serotonin levels are going to come down and those gut bacterial populations are going to deteriorate and have an, an ulterior effect or, or a negative effect on our gut lining, which triggers more inflammation. So this is something that we need to consider as a root cause of inflammatory triggers that can lead to a breakdown or push us down a negative path when it comes to our optimal health. So we're going to produce that serotonin ideally for our central nervous system within those dorsal rafi nuclei. Then that serotonin that's within the central nervous system will ideally, for, for our CNS, go to the pineal gland where it's broken down to melatonin. And melatonin release occurs at the pineal gland to help us get to sleep. That is really important. It doesn't actually put us to sleep. Melatonin is not the sleep hormone. It helps us get down the path where we're calm, relaxed, and ready to go to sleep then we have to essentially prompt that to fall asleep. But that's where the anti-inflammatory effect of melatonin occurs, is during sleep. That's where melatonin levels are elevated, and that's really important. Microbiome-related stuff require that melatonin for that reactive oxygen species activity to for the anti antioxidant activity to function at their level. And we require it just not just in our CNS, but throughout our entire body to prompt antioxidant function and recovery during sleep. Because during the day, our serotonin levels are high, our stressor levels are generally higher, and we produce more reactive oxygen species. Ideally, we don't hit that threshold that's required to push us over into a disease state. Melatonin and our optimal sleep on a nightly basis is going to help to allow us to maintain optimal function and recover from those stressors on a nightly basis. So this is an important piece of the puzzle. When yeah. there is an inflammatory reaction, we go down the other pathway. We actually steal away from the serotonin pathway. We go down the indole-2,3-deoxygenase IDO pathway, and we produce too much kynurinate, too much quinolinate. And these two, kynuric acid and, and quinolic acid, these two are produced in higher quantities when the inflammation level is uncontrolled and excessive. We do need a little bit of it, but if we're pushing towards that side too much, then we're lowering our serotonin and our melatonin levels. And that's where we get into some problems. Yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to just add on to what you were saying about sleep and the pineal gland releasing melatonin, and it's not that melatonin is the sleep hormone, but one of the things that sleep, and we talked about this when we had our session on sleep, is that there's a need to produce pro-inflammatory cytokines like TNF-alpha and IL-1 during that sleep process, but not necessarily to generate inflammation. But the purpose of that is to motivate or to be part of the process of pruning of the network. So we talked about the importance during sleep of reinforcing learning and long-term potentiation and frankly, going through and pruning and digesting away things that were created or de cellular debris that's left over from the day's processes of learning and observing and creating memories. Um, and that process, if you're generating TNF-alpha, can lead to inflammation 
and lead to reactive oxygen species, upregulation, et cetera. And the higher levels of melatonin are actually protective. So part of the process of sleep is the melatonin being upregulated because there's going to be some higher levels of reactive oxygen species floating around during that active pruning process. Yeah, that's a really important point here. Melatonin is so important in regulating homeostasis and maintaining that homeostatic nature and that recovery process during the nighttime when we're ideally supposed to be sleeping. So it's really important to have a good level of melatonin. When we don't have that, when we suppress serotonin production and thus have lower levels of melatonin, we run the risk of higher levels of inflammatory reactive oxygen species present. We have we run the risk of TNF-alpha that's present in the brain, allowing for the pruning process to occur to go over a threshold where it then creates more of a chronic inflammatory reaction and actually leads to inflammation within the brain. And we risk going down that indole-2,3-deoxygenase pathway where your kynurinate and quinolinate levels go up excessively. And that's where we don't want to be. We don't want to be in that chronically inflammatory state where the reactive oxygen species, kynurinate, quinolinate levels, and the TNF-alpha levels are high because when they're high and they surpass a certain threshold, which I believe is different in every single person, that threshold that we're capable of handling, when that level gets too high, we go down chronic inflammatory pathways. Melatonin is necessary for regulating and maintaining that optimal level and, and keeping us below that threshold. It's also one of the reasons why, you know, if you bring this back to what does health look like, health looks like normal sleep patterns, normal circadian rhythm patterns. And one of the things that you see in depressed patients where there is that inability to produce serotonin because the pathway is being diverted in a different direction is disrupted sleep patterns. And in fact, sleep disruption in and of itself is inflammatory because it's not getting that release of melatonin necessary to modulate that rea those reactive oxygen species. And so again, temporary or transient events are tolerable. There are things that you can recover from. However, when you have an extended period of this or ex severe inflammation that lasts for an extended period of time, that melatonin deficit leads to even those anti-inflammatory cells becoming repolarized in the direction of, of being inflammatory. And how does that happen? And this is where it all ties back together. Because if you have that extended period of inflammation, then there's not enough melatonin. Not enough melatonin leads to damaged mitochondrial DNA and, my, and mitochondria. They eject their DNA. Then through that sting and toll receptor 9 pathway, you have that cell that wants to stay in an anti-inflammatory state, but it's been under pressure for so long that the mitochondria become dysfunctional. And now that inflammatory cascade is triggered and it starts up again. Now, it's, it's one of those observations that when you see it in this context, it makes sense. But otherwise, we, without this, it doesn't make any sense at all. And that is that when microglial cells become inflamed, or macrophages become inflamed, it often appears that they cease using oxidative phosphorylation in mitochondria to generate ATP, and they become reliant only on glycolysis and for energy. 
And that would make no sense because becoming inflamed is an energy intensive process. And if it's that energy intensive, why would you want to disable the ability to generate ATP in prodigious quantities that my, mitochondria can do? Well, the reason is because they have to, because the mitochondria themselves are under assault and are now dysfunctional. So it's not a, it's not a strategy, it's a consequence. So the microglial cells and, and macrophages have to rely on glycolysis because mitochondria are dysfunctional. And this is where clinically we'll start to see challenges like brain fogginess, the inability to think clearly. We're not producing quite enough energy within the neurons, within the microglial cells to do the proper pruning jobs, to maintain optimal neuroplasticity, to op maintain optimal homeostasis within the CNS. And so we start to see like kind of the inability to think as clearly as we want to. I kind of just experienced that right now, trying to explain this. Essentially, we're, we're not allowing that energy process to be optimized. And in doing so, we're not allowing brain function to be optimized. And this is where we often see those first stages of brain fogginess because we're experiencing pain or we're experiencing inflammation that's creating this reaction to occur. Brain fogginess or the inability to go through a cognitive process effectively is essentially that first sign of mitochondrial dysfunction within the body. This is where we'll often see it because the need for ATP production within the brain is significantly higher. And when that ATP production is decreased because we've shifted from oxidative phosphorylation to glycolysis, we're reducing ATP levels. We're actually going to be driving hunger. Our, our hunger is going to be increased. Our desire for sugars is going to be increased because we want glucose to help to provide glycolysis tools with glucose, obviously, that's going to drive potentially blood sugar imbalances and other challenges that are going to create dysbiosis or whatnot. So it's the beginning of this inflammatory process that triggers an inflammatory cycle as well. And that can lead to significant other challenges. You'll often see brain fog as one of those first signs of dysfunction that leads to disease. Yeah. And you also get gluconeogenesis in the liver. I mean, yes. one of the things we've talked about in the past is the whole metabolic inflammation side of things, where if you have chronic inflammation in the case of obesity, it comes from the adipose tissue. But if you had that chronic level of high levels of, of inflammatory cytokines, the liver kicks in and starts to generate glucose in high quantities. And the reason for that is exactly what you just said the immune system and cells start to have to rely on glycolysis versus oxidative phosphorylation for their energy. And though so lots and lots of glucose is necessary. It's part of the reason why you get insulin resistance also because you need so much more glucose to run a cell that if you're not using oxidative phosphorylation, that they actually want to sort of shut down your muscles and fat cells from taking in any of that glucose and, and leave it only for your immune cells and your brain cells or your nerve cells. So, but this is where, this is where we, we come back to, okay, how does the autonomic nervous system play into this? And the autonomic nervous system, as we've talked about on every show we've talked, we've done is that you have two arms of it. You have the sympathetic and the parasympathetic and the sympathetic releases norepinephrine that, that is associated with alertness. It's associated with your stress response. It's associated with the fight or flight response. Uh, then you have the parasympathetic, which is 
associated with acetylcholine. And acetylcholine is, is, has the ability to do a number of different things, but overall, it's your rest, digest, and restore mode. And we've talked at length about how activating that parasympathetic arm is, in the brain, capable of upregulating acetylcholine release, also upregulate serotonin release. And so that entire pathway appears to be run through the alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. That's a receptor that is uh, found on the surface of many cells. Almost all innate immune cells have this alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. And activation of it by the release of acetylcholine, so again, activating the vagus nerve, activates the release of acetylcholine, activates the A7 or alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor, and that leads to multiple pathways for downregulating inflammation. When those receptors are on the external membrane of the cell, there's the JAK2 STAT3 pathway and then a separate NERF2 pathway that block the transcription of the inflammasome. So all of the genes associated with inflammation get activated as a result of of activation by TNF-alpha or other things, and it can be blocked by uh, acetylcholine binding to the alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. However, that's not the only place that those receptors exist. And in sort of one of those no way moments, it was found that the alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor is also found on the surface of mitochondria which means that mitochondria have the ability to use acetylcholine to regulate inflammation and damage that's going on inside their their own organelle and this is really important because and this is this was discovered back in 2013 2014 time frame but what was what was discovered it was a sort of a very interesting study that was done they found that ex, external or extracellular acetylcholine levels if they were raised, what what they found concentrations of that acetylcholine inside mitochondria later on. So there was clearly a pathway for bringing the acetylcholine in through the external membrane of the cell into contact with the alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor on the mitochondria. And the question was, well, why? What's it doing? Why do we need that there? What what is what are the mitochondria doing with acetylcholine and activation of this receptor? And although the specific details haven't com- been completely worked out yet, it appears that what that does is block or inhibit the ejection of that dysfunctional DNA into the cytosol or into the interior of the cell that leads to inflammation. So the practical upshot is that the presence of the alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor on mitochondria blocks inflammation through a separate pathway that would otherwise be activated by the release of DNA. So this is how you know, melatonin is preventing the damage. The alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor and acetylcholine are giving that mitochondria a larger tolerance, if you will, for damage. Um, And so we don't know if it's delaying the process or if it's raising the threshold for release or it's enhancing repair mechanisms. We don't yet know, but we do know that the release of that DNA from mitochondria 
is inhibited by the presence of a parasympathetic tone. The great thing about this is most of what we've talked about in this podcast is how the autonomic nervous system modulates innate immune cells and how critically important that is. But this shows how modulation of the autonomic nervous system and activation of the vagus nerve actually affects every cell in your body that has mitochondria. So this is, it's such a huge revelation. I still remember that no way moment when you and I were learning about this as well, when the high level of acetylcholine that's, or or when we found out specifically that the alpha seven negatonic acetylcholine receptor was expressed on the surface of mitochondria itself was a such a revelation and that it had this effect of decreasing mitochondrial DNA release, thus stopping that inflammatory cascade or, or preventing that inflammatory cascade from taking place. It was such an important revelation. And now realizing that what we're doing when we're in that parasympathetic state and releasing more acetylcholine is clinically, we're giving our body a bit of a, a moment where the melatonin levels can come back and we're providing the cells an opportunity almost like a second chance type of opportunity to help to get rid of the inflammation and manage the reactive oxygen species within and around the cells to stop that inflammatory cascade from becoming heavily chronic and becoming heavily burdensome and and going down this disease-based chronic inflammatory pathway. We're essentially giving the body an opportunity to repair and support optimal function once again. And this is why we, in basically every episode that we've talked about, we need to talk about sleep and getting optimal sleep. We need to talk about optimal exercise, optimal diet, cleaning things up from uh, decreasing the inflammatory burdens on the cell and providing the vagus nerve an opportunity to do its job of helping us maintain an optimal function and give us the opportunity to repair and restore any damage that has been done. It's never truly just about one piece to the puzzle. There's many pieces to this puzzle allowing us to help not go down that inflammatory cascade on a chronic basis. Acute inflammation is necessary and we have mechanisms to allow for that system to work effectively. But when the inflammatory levels are higher, when the inflammatory burdens are higher on our body, we're not sleeping well, we're eating a diet that's high in sugars and and processed chemicals, and we're allowing toxins to get in, and we're breaking down our mitochondria because we're not sleeping effectively, we're essentially pushing ourselves down that inflammatory cascade and giving ourselves that opportunity to break down more easily. Whereas when we're in that parasympathetic state, when we're sleeping better, when we're breathing better, when we're exercising effectively, when we're moving effectively, and we're doing things in a much more effective basis, we're giving our bodies an opportunity to function optimally. And this is when we can think more clearly, be more productive, and do more on a daily basis. This is what we're trying to create as an opportunity to be better humans. Yeah, and I think I think while we don't know whether or not other antioxidants will have the same effect as melatonin on mitochondria, we do have many other options for reactive oxygen species sequestration and removal, scavenging them away with things like glutathione and other antioxidants that we can augment in our diet with supplements or you know things like exercise. And, and we've talked about it many times, 
meditation and, and yoga and these things are really good at enhancing the body's ability to clear out those reactive oxygen species. And to the extent that that means that melatonin isn't being used in sort of a collateral or in a separate pathway to try to get rid of those reactive oxygen species, that melatonin is available to for the mitochondria. And that's really, to the extent that we can preserve that melatonin for use and maintaining mitochondrial health and function, that would be really helpful. So the, the more antioxidants you can take and, and, and use and more exercise you can get, the better. You know, I think that this is one of the more important topics that we've tackled. And I think it ties together many of the other topics that we've tackled over the last several months. And just maybe just as a way of summarizing, because we did tackle a lot today, you know, inflamed cells release inflammatory cytokines. They can have an effect on anti-inflammatory cells. So, so for example, recruited macrophages. We've talked about the fact that monocytes that are circulating in your bloodstream are attracted to damage and attracted to pathogens in tissue. So they'll, they'll move into that tissue and they'll become recruited macrophages that have by themselves a focus and an orientation towards being inflamed. And when they're there, they have a pressure that they're applying to the tissue resident macrophages, some of which may have become already inflammatory because of the damage or the pathogen that's there. But the, the goal is to maintain them in an anti-inflammatory state or get them back to an anti-inflammatory state as quickly as possible. And what that those inflammatory cytokines do is they upregulate that chemical IDO, that indolamine 2,3-deoxygenase in the brain. And that the presence of that is there for a reason. It's there to help the acute problem as a, you know, as killing microbes. But at the same time, it does have this ability, unfortunately, to disrupt serotonin production. And because of that, you feel, you know, mood and, and pain problems, which go along with being sick and being inflamed, having damage is, you know, you got depression and you've got pain and you have sleep problems. And the sleep problems are because of that downstream chemical melatonin that's produced from serotonin. That lack of melatonin causes a slow increase in that oxidative stress and damage inside the mitochondria. That damage accumulates. And if it doesn't stop because the, because the inflammation is chronic or it's so serious that it stays around for so long, then the damage is so strong that the DNA will re be released from the mitochondria, which triggers that cell that wanted to stay anti-inflammatory. We were really hoping that it would. It gets pushed over into being inflammatory. And the beautiful story is that we can, through activation of our parasympathetic nervous system and the ingestion of antioxidants and other things, we can either mitigate the damage or potentially prevent that inflammation from occurring and you know that's why observations and and many healthcare providers will encourage people to use these compounds and these strategies because it it will help you remain healthy for the long term and 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 we didn't talk about it you know on this episode but we've talked about it in the past one of the real problems that occurs is that macrophages and microglial cells can become primed that is sort of some level of damage has occurred but it reaches the point where it's sort of, it's unrecoverable, but the cell isn't necessarily inflammatory 
right now, but it will become inflammatory very rapidly and very robustly with just the slightest trigger. So you sort of become sensitized. And again, how do we get the cells out of that state? We take antioxidants, we activate that vagus nerve, whether it be with, with exercise or meditation or electrically activated or through other techniques, we have the ability to live a longer, healthier, less inflamed life. Yeah, we can either be primed towards inflammation or primed towards recovery. And the driver for this is autonomic nervous system activation, activation of the vagus nerve, whether we're in the sympathetic state too long or the parasympathetic state and being able to bounce back and forth is truly what resilience is. We can prime ourselves for either going down that in chronic inflammatory state or to state, stay in a homeostatic anti-inflammatory state and handle the stressors as they come up or not, depending on the state of our bodies. And this is why autonomic nervous system activation of the vagus nerve is so, so important in ensuring that we're able to function at a high level. I don't think there's much more we can say on this topic. I'm sure we could go down multiple rabbit holes after this particular chat, but I think this clearly explains the importance of and the interactions between serotonin, melatonin, acetylcholine, the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, and how mitochondria function. Mitochondria, like I mentioned early on in this episode, very, very important to our optimal function. And when they are dysfunctional, this is often where the root of disease can go. That, that pathway leads through mitochondrial dysfunction to lead to chronic disease. And we don't want to go down that path. We want to prime our bodies to be able to handle that recovery, to be able to decrease mitochondrial DNA release, to be able to prime ourselves to stay in a parasympathetic state. Yeah, wonderful. I think this is great for today. And we're going to be talking more about these and, and very clinically based or practitioner based tools in future episodes. So stay tuned to more episodes that are coming in the new year. And we're excited to share more and more with you on the importance of vagus nerve activation, the importance of sleep, the importance of creating a well-balanced life in order to help yourself function at a very high level. And if you're a practitioner, help your patients overcome their challenges and become a much better version of themselves. So I hope you learned a lot from today. I hope you understand where vagus nerve activation comes in to help apply that cognitive and overall systemic optimization pathway. And I hope you were able to take this away because mitochondria are heavily important and we want to make sure that people are functioning well. All right. Anything to add at the end there, JP? No, I just think that this is a great way to synthesize a lot of the topics that we've talked about in the past and understand if there were if there were gaps in 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 your thinking as to why this is occurring you know why is sleep affecting inflammation why is stress leading to you know sleep problems mood problems pain problems how is serotonin involved with inflammation now you understand because all those pieces now come together through mitochondrial function and mitochondrial dysfunction and i think it's a, it's a great topic i'm i'm glad we did it absolutely Wonderful. Well, if you got to this point, thank you for listening. And please stay tuned for future episodes of the Health Upgrade podcast. Please share this with anyone you think that could utilize the information as well. Have a wonderful day. And if you're listening in the new year, happy new year. Have a wonderful 2023. 